Hi everyone, and welcome to SEDScast. I'm your host, Owen Marr, and joining me today as co-host is Alex Samra. Our guest today is astronaut Greg Johnson. Greg began his flight career as a pilot in the U.S. Air Force. After serving in combat, he became a test pilot for variants of the F-15 and the T-38. Greg joined the NASA Astronaut Corps in 1998. During his 15-year stint at NASA, Greg was able to pilot the Space Shuttle Endeavor for STS-123 and STS-134. Following his work at NASA, Greg became the Executive Director for CASIS, which oversees half of the science in the U.S. National Lab aboard the ISS. Greg now serves as a board member for a variety of organizations focused on space and STEM education. He has had some incredible experiences over the past decades, and we're thrilled to have him share some of the stories with us today. Welcome to SEDScast, Episode 8 with Greg Johnson. SEDScast. It's your host, Owen Marr. Joining me as co-host today is Alex Samra, and joining us as our guest today is Greg Johnson. Greg, how you doing? How's it going, Owen? Good to talk to you. We're super glad to have you on. We're going to talk about a bunch of different interesting stuff today. Could you start by giving us just a background on where you're from, who you are, and kind of what you do right now? Sort of in a nutshell, I started off as a military brat. My dad was a musician in the Air Force, so we traveled around the world. I actually grew up in Germany and then eventually ended up in Ohio. Um, always interested in airplanes and space. I ended up going to the Air Force Academy. Uh, but because I loved engineering as well, I wanted to get that engineering master's out of the way before I started flying. Eventually, I flew, flew fighters uh, and then became a test pilot and then cruised off in, uh, into the astronaut course. So that that's sort of in a nutshell how I got from the UK where I was born, where my dad happened to be stationed uh, in in USAFE, the United States Air Forces in Europe, to um, uh, the astronaut corps. I did do some things after being an astronaut. I think we'll be talking about those, uh, but it's been a really fun uh, run and uh, I've really enjoyed every step of the way. Awesome. Yeah, I had a question. So if you're born at like a U.S. Air Force base out of the country. Are you an American citizen or are you a U.K. citizen? Yeah, I w- I'm a U- you're considered to be a, an American citizen and it's not okay. like you're naturalized or anything. Um, gotcha. There is there is some great I don't know that I can be a president of the United States. Not that I would <laughs> want to be anyway. <laughs> I think there's yeah. some grayness to that. Uh, but I think I think there was one one uh, candidate who was born in Panama. I can't remember who. Um, John McCain, I think, is who it was. But anyway, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that just came to mind. That's awesome. So let's talk uh, about your education first. So Air Force Academy, any memorable events or things that happened there that you want to talk about? At the Air Force Academy, it was a very textured academic environment where you had other things besides just academics. So we had the military type stuff. We had uh, athletics. And of course, we were learning how to be officers in the in the U.S. Air Force. So it was a quite challenging four years, but I think I grew in a lot of different ways uh, with leadership and academics and athletically, and then also uh, j- just discipline. I think I was probably one of your more undisciplined good students. I was a good student in high school, but I wasn't terribly disciplined. I think I was probably one of those guys that the the quicker you get behind, the more time you have to catch up when you're doing 
I, I was sort of a procrastinator. So um, I, I was an aeronautical engineering major. Probably a really cool aha moment was the senior project where we went through the design of, of an airplane using the, the stuff we had at the time, which is very antiquated compared to the stuff you're doing now. But sticking in all the different uh, requirements that I wanted in this this fighter, it it came out looking like an F-15. It was really amazing. And an F-15 <laughs> was always the airplane that I want to fly. But I mean, all the different trades with the engines and the control surfaces and everything and 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 the sweep because of the speed requirements, it, it, it ended up looking like an F-15. And I was really inspired by that. I said, wow, man, this engineering stuff is really cool. So I wasn't your typical guy that just wanted to fly airplanes. I was really interested in engineering and I actually wanted to be a pilot uh, originally to be a better engineer. Um, I got over that when I really started flying airplanes and and it was so much fun. But then when I came back as a test pilot, I brought that engineering back uh, into the flying scene. Uh, other things at the Air Force Academy, I was a musician in the Drum and Bugle Corps, so I traveled with the Air Force Academy to lots of different bowls and other uh, football events. We went to Tokyo and lots of cool places, so it was a great experience. At the time, I thought I was under duress, but I enjoyed I, I enjoyed having that experience. That's awesome. And And why did you decide to go straight into grad school afterwards instead of doing something else? Well, at the Air Force Academy, you had to get a fellowship to go directly into grad school. And so um, I, I applied for a bunch of fellowships and, and the one I ended up with was, was a Guggenheim. And so that way you can go directly into grad school and then do your flying career. If you don't get a fellowship, then the, they won't let you go to grad school. They actually make you work uh, for a number of years in an assignment or two and then They'll, they'll, they give you what's called a blue chip if you have good grades at the Air Force Academy, and then they'll let you do grad school um, later later on in your career. But I went to Columbia. It was a great year. I learned a lot in New York City, not just uh, academically, but culturally, because I'd been kind of sheltered at the Air Force Academy. So, mm-hmm. And what was it like, you know, the first time you hopped into a fighter aircraft? What was that like? What was that experience? You know, I, I remember it uh, to this day. Um it, I stayed as an instructor pilot after pilot training, after I got my wings for three years teaching. So if you talk about the setbacks you have in life's life, everybody has setbacks. And I wanted to go straight into a fighter after I got my wings, but I w- didn't graduate at the top of my class, but I was just good enough that they wanted to keep me as an instructor. So I go, oh, great. Okay. So, um, but I learned a lot in those three years about flying, but I also had the opportunity then because enough enough years had passed that the F-15E came out. And so I got to be an original F-15E person, which was just an amazing stroke of luck and opportunity. And this airplane was the equivalent of the SpaceX demo rocket that you saw launch a couple of weeks ago. It was state-of-the-art, all-glass cockpit, multi-purpose displays, um, and, and a really interesting airplane. I remember the first time I stepped in in, in that airplane and um, it, it was like a Cadillac compared to the T-38. But I like flying all airplanes. I like little airplanes, um, big airplanes. I've flown over 50 now in, in different parts of my career. and uh, but, but the fighter, getting in that first fighter was a wonderful moment. 
I'm sure. I've heard uh, mixed reviews about the T-38s and that they might be a little bit unstable at times. What Did you have any issues flying those? Um, I mean, the, the T-38 has a bad, uh, ha- has a little bit of a Dutch roll uh, on it if you don't have the yaw damper uh, engaged. And so that Dutch roll it is really kind of sloppy. Um, and, and but, but with the yaw damper, it, it's really pretty smooth. The fugoid that the T-38 has uh, is, is what gives it its, its uh, sort of unstable longitudinally. Not terribly unstable, but just enough so it's a pain in, pain in the butt. You can't really just trim it up and hold the altitude. Uh, you you got to keep working on it. So, um, yeah, these engineering terms are, are coming back to me after 40 years. Sorry. <laughs> That's good to hear. So you mentioned a little bit that... You know, you, you kind of have to combine engineering and your pilot skills when you're doing experimental aircraft. What is the actual process for testing aircraft and then giving feedback and actually iterating the design to improve them? Okay, so that's that's a pretty complicated uh, question. So I'll kind of start at the top. Every, every new airplane um, has some sort of comp, uh, competition with prototypes. And that's where a lot of the designing is occurring. Uh, in airplanes, and to get involved in one of those programs is is pretty rare and and really exciting. Most of the test flying is refining existing um, airplanes with new systems or new engines. I got to do one uh, new system first flight, and that was probably my most exciting uh, test program. Was active. It's an acronym and advanced control vectoring. It, I should probably look it up and, and say it on this thing, but it, it, it was a red, white, and blue F-15B two-seater uh, with, with canards, F-18 canards on the front. It's a really cool airplane, and it, it was completely fly-by-wire. Uh, unlike the F-15, it's kind of half fly-by-wire and half hydromechanical. So uh, this active bird was a perfect test bed to test the axisymmetric thrust vectoring technology that the F-35 is now using. I mean, of course, they've refined that the design on that technology. I was testing it in the 90s, and, and it's two decades later. But that was really exciting technology to fly, a very unique test bed. And um, I, my first flight with that, um, or I guess my, my milestone in, in that test program was the first supersonic flight using those uh, axisymmetric uh, uh, thrust vectoring engines is pretty cool. I loved engine test because it was exciting and and it's cool. I remember when we were trying to uh, outfit the F-15 with GE-129 engines, and each of those engines puts out about 30,000 pounds of thrust. So 60,000 pounds of thrust on an airplane that weighs 29,000, that's you know, over a two to one thrust to weight ratio. And you, you couldn't even light the afterburner for takeoff because you would accelerate too fast and you'd overspeed the gear. So you actually had to take off and mill power, get the gear up, light the blowers, and then just go straight up. I mean, it was just an amazing airplane. And we tested, and but we were testing the engines, you know, the interface of the F-15. So it was a single seater uh, for that test program. Uh, and, and hitting the test points, 500 feet at 800 knots calibrated, you know, supersonic over the ocean, uh, west of Edwards, and then up to Mach 2.5 at 50,000 feet uh, in the high altitude supersonic corridor at Edwards. It was really a fun program, taking the engine all to the whole 
the whole envelope of, uh, of the uh, aircraft. Um, I've got a question regarding that. So um, I guess one thing I can think of is back when I used to run track, when I'd be doing my sprint um, for the 100 meter, you know, it's that gunshot goes off and you're just like in that zone, you know, totally focused, no thoughts. I was curious, you know, when you're flying a fighter, especially a new one, you know, going Mach 2.5, is there anything going through your head? I mean, obviously there's a lot of technical things you're doing, or is it very fluid? You know, is it just your body taking over all the adrenaline is just kind of rushing and you don't really remember what's going through your head? Well, I think there is some temporal distortion when you do really exciting things. Uh, launch in the space shuttle, uh, 800 knots. I never saw that on an airplane at 500 feet, uh, which is kind of an interesting thing. You know, in my career, I've had a few times that I uh, uh, made a fatal error um, or got close. I never made one, right? Yeah, but right. got close to it. And I, I was surprised when I was at 800 knots at 500 feet in the F-15 and it, it was a, um, you know, it was a acceleration profile and then a decel profile. And so I yanked the throttles back to idle. They don't really go to idle because the digital electronic engine control doesn't let you. But it, but when I yanked it from full blower at 800 knots at 500 feet and pulled to idle, I was 1.3 G's eyeballs out. And so it moved my, physically moved my body forward. And I'm holding the stick, right? And I'm at 500 feet and I'm going Mach 1. Point, I think it was about Mach 1.2 or so, Mach 1.3. I mean, there were there it was kicking up the water behind the airplane, but I I lost I lost a couple hundred feet on that little dip there. Wow. Went down to you could see it. it There's a control room because you have control rooms uh, when you're testing these airplanes, and and the guy who was watching altitude saw the little dip there um, uh, at 800 knots. Yeah, so. It wasn't, it was pretty momentary, but, but it was definitely noticeable. So I was, he, and he says, why'd you do that? And I said, well, because my body went forward at 1.3 G's. Yeah. <laughs> get you. And a hundred pound guy like me, that that's 130 pounds of thrust or force. I'm just yeah. Kidding. That's crazy. I'm sure when you're going that yeah, quick, uh, 500 feet, it's not all that big of a vertical difference. That's closes quickly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it closed pretty quickly. It all happened in probably about 10 milliseconds. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, definitely. That's quite the focus. Uh, yeah. So I was really focused at that particular point. I was, yeah, I didn't want to fly into the water. No. Uh, yeah. I was also impressed at the acceleration of the F-15 when you have a two to one thrust to weight ratio. I mean, it it was like 600, 650, 700, 720, 740. I mean, it was just accelerating right through those supersonic speeds, just unbelievable. It's really quite impressive. Do you hear, uh, is there a lot of noise for the supersonic booms when you're inside the cockpit or no? Nope. You don't hear anything. Really? That's nope. nice. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's just, it's just hitting the ground. It's, it's being created on your airplane and it's, and mm -hmm, right. you're past it. I mean, you're in front of it, right? Yeah. Cool. So sounds like you were, really into going fast and then you decided to go even faster and you wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, what caused you to try and apply for becoming an astronaut? Well, there may be two big milestone moments in my life. One was when I was seven years old at my grandparents' house in Cairo, Michigan. And uh, on the 29th of July, 1969, so that kind of gives you an indication of how old I am now. Mm -hmm. I'm an old guy. Uh, the, the space shuttle I flew is now in a museum, right? Yeah. But, um, <laughs> But when I was seven, I was inspired and uh, I just could not believe that a human being was walking on the surface of the moon. So Neil Armstrong was my number one, really, for most of my life. And 
the way he conducted himself, um, his humility and his excellence uh, was was a good model for me to follow. So that's when I had the dream of becoming an astronaut. And then there were different steps along the way. I didn't really think I was going to be an astronaut. I love flying airplanes and uh, I was enjoying being a test pilot. But uh, but actually, just before I became a test pilot, I got some advice from a guy who was the future NASA administrator. His name was Charlie Bolden. And this was in the early 90s when this, the Authorization Act for the Space Station Freedom passed by like one vote. So it was a very politically controversial um, era in space exploration here in the United States. And so uh, they were going around the country in these road shows. And at, at the time, um, Dan Golden was the NASA administrator and Charlie Bolden had, was just, he was a pilot astronaut. He'd been to the Hubble Space Telescope, I think just one shuttle flight. Um, so but he was the future NASA administrator 20 years down the road. He was actually with us in Traverse City uh, last year um, go, going around. Uh, we, we did a joint uh, talk with, with, with a lot of kids in Traverse City um, with, with Jerry Leninger as well. Off topic. So Charlie Bolden and I met in 1993. I took the day off and I went to one of those road shows and he said, you know, you know, what's your background? I said, well, I just, I'm, I'm a geek engineer who loves flying airplanes and I want to be an astronaut. And he says, go to test pilot school. Like yesterday, go to test pilot school. Yes, sir. You know, so I, so I did with, I applied like the next day. <laughs> I was thinking, why, why didn't I think of this sooner? But um, <laughs> in a case, I went to test pilot school and he said, do really well. So I worked hard at test pilot school. And that was actually the pathway that led me into the space program. So I guess the answer is dream when I was seven. And then it actually became like something that I thought might be possible after I talked to Charlie Bolden. And we all have those moments, those milestone moments that kind of cause us uh, to, to make a, a pivot or even a step function in, in our uh, evolution of life. Uh, and those were definitely two of them. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing that you met him back then. And also, yeah, I would imagine that seeing Neil on the moon when you're that young and impressionable would be really amazing. Oh, I was just going to say, Charlie Bolden uh, later became the NASA administrator under uh, Barack Obama for eight years. So he was in that position a long, long time. Um, so, you know, went full circle. And then when I after I left NASA, I was actually working with him directly uh, when I was running cases. So that was another connection in life. That's funny. Um, so once you heard you got into that, you were accepted in 1998 class of astronauts. Is that right? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how long did you train for before you were assigned to a, a mission? When you first become an astronaut, there's about a year and a half to your program. Uh, it's called the astronaut candidate training program. And it's sort of like the undergraduate of being an astronaut. And then you wait uh, to be assigned. In the case of, of my class and the class right before me, we had a big glut of astronauts. So it took a long time for us to get to fly in space. We also had the Columbia um, accident in 2003 before anybody in my class had flown in space. So we were, we were delayed yet another two and a half years. But so, so to answer your question, I, my first flight was in 2008. So it was almost 10 years uh, before I flew in space. I think I was assigned in 2006. And then we, um, you know, the training was delayed a little bit and we ended up flying in 2008. 
And that, so typically for a shuttle flight, we would train a year, year and a half. Uh, for the space station expeditions that are much longer, they train for three years-ish, something like that. So people that flew seven times in space, they're basically either training or flying in space during their careers. People like me who flew twice in 15 years, uh, it would be a year and a half as an astronaut candidate. And then we all have other jobs and recurrency training and PRs and a whole, all, all, a, whole, a whole bunch of different activities that we do. But eventually then you get assigned and you go through a graduate school course for dedicated to that particular mission. Yeah, that's interesting to hear because you, I imagine there was a lot of other stuff you got to do besides flying the shuttle when you're there for that long and doing two flights. What were your nerves like the day of your first flight? Can you walk us through that? So it felt, okay, in a way it felt like my first combat mission uh, because I, I was well-trained, I was confident, I was a little bit intimidated, but it was, it was what I was training to do. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what it was going to look like on the other side. And so getting, going out to the spaceship when it had been fueled and, you know, poised for launch, it was like a living, breathing spaceship. It was hissing and creaking with cryogenic fuel, you know, off gassing. It was just, mm-hmm. and so getting into it, a surreal experience. And of course I was in my forties, so I'd been planning for this moment for a long, long time. And it was, you could flash it back to when I was seven, you know, it was a 40 year dream uh, that was about to happen. Um, if you flash back to me talking to Charlie Bolden in 1993, it still was, you know, decade and a half later. And so all that mm-hmm. work, it yeah. was, um, it was really professionally meaningful and exciting. Once you get into the vehicle, you, it's, you know, you've got your game faces on, but you're also keeping each other cool and calm by chatting a little bit. But once you get about five minutes prior to launch in our show, in our case, when, when the pilot starts the auxiliary power units, the APUs, that's when everybody's got their game faces on and nobody's really chatting much. And then, then you start feeling your heartbeat uh, a little bit faster as the countdown goes down. We mm-hmm. stop at 31 seconds, but then five, four, three, two, one, man, it was just, whoa. And then the liftoff was so incredible. Uh, that first liftoff, it was a night launch uh, for this crew, STS-123. Uh, About two in the morning, it just illuminated the Florida coast. We had an overcast deck, so it kind of boxed in the light better for the crowd. So that really people watching it said it, you could see everything uh, as we were blasting through that 5,000-foot deck. Uh, acceleration, sound, um, vibration. It was sensory overload. And then as we accelerated toward that cl- that really thin cloud deck, it was like fa- flying through a wall of fire. Unbelievable experience. And then we popped through the cloud, that, that wall of fire, and then it was just completely dark and, and amazing. Uh, but, but, you know, we were still vibrating for another two minutes um, until the solid rocket boosters uh, burned out and then fell away. And then we're zipping around on only a million pounds of thrust up to uh, 17,500 miles an hour. Only a million. It was, yeah, it was, it was both, both launches. I highly recommend it. I mean, I, I'm not a 
an adrenaline junkie. I love roller coasters though. And I enjoyed skydiving, things like that, but I'm not a junkie. I don't have a motorcycle that goes 200 miles an hour, but, but I do like to go fast. And, um, that was the, um, ultimate, uh, crazy ride on the way up into space. Yeah. It's pretty much as fast as we can go right now. Yeah. I, uh, I'm curious. So after that, you know, trip of a lifetime, you get to space and you're kind of floating towards the ISS. Um, where, so, so at, at what point does it set in that, like now I'm in space, you know, going from sensory overload, everything is just, you know, crashing around you, wall of fire, everything. And then all of a sudden you're in space and that like moment of, of, or I guess, is there that moment of tranquility or is that like a, a misconception? I'm curious if once you've gotten into space, does it calm down or, or is it like, okay, now we're trying to figure out how to attach the ISS and there's more panic. So I'm a little bit of the grown-up version of my middle son is I'm I'm just kind of a loud guy. So you nobody really had any tranquility being crude with me. I'm just sure. kidding. No, uh, but eight and a half minutes, then you wait to come off of the external tank uh, in the shuttle system. Uh, it was dark, right? And, and we had a malfunction. Mm-hmm. We had a pretty major malfunction um, on the pilot side of the cockpit so it was my fault i uh, know they i we just had a bank of engines that failed because of a card and so we had asymmetric um reaction control uh jets so when we came off the external tank we had about three times the normal pulses to get off the tank and each pulse and of course we simmed it you know in the simulator but in real life it in in the dark it was I just saw these balls going off in all different directions, bang, 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 for a really long time. It was like being maybe inside of a firework. <laughs> That's the best way I can think about it. <laughs> so, and, okay. And then, boom, we come off the tank, and and then it's tranquil. It's tranquil. So that's the moment is after you, you have main engine cutoff, Miko, then we came off the tank. It was like when SpaceX released their second stage is when we uh, had released our external tank. That's sort of the same uh, program going on there. Uh, but then it was tranquil, but I, my first flight, I started historically laughing after that. And I laughed, I laughed for about 10, 10 seconds straight. And it, and it's all caught on video, um, and audio too. Unfortunately, I, I might've said something that I should know. <laughs> um, I remember my, my son, uh, he, he was in high school. He says, dad, you're cussing up there. It, the, the audio feed was not supposed to come down, but it did. But I, I said a little bit of a, of a four letter word. Um, but, and, and, but it was clipped by the, um, it was clipped by the audio because the audio signals often are clipped uh, going to and from the space uh, ship. So um, I, I could lie and say that it wasn't really what I was saying, but right. But it is on the internet. It's on the internet. You can find it if you if you look hard enough. <laughs> Some sure. Somebody's got it recorded because it got it got on the internet. <laughs> yeah. And my son heard it before I even landed. You know, it was it, it was it was totally a mistake because it, that audio was not supposed to be even getting out on the internet. And um, and secondly, uh, that particular portion, it, it was just a little bit of a comedy of errors that they actually somebody got their hands on it and put it on yeah. the internet but it's kind of funny i'm proud of it great <laughs> <laughs> um and so, and, so, and so then we're you know we're, we're strapped in in our seat still we're in zero gravity and then we just go through the process of you know getting out of our seats getting the systems shut down that that are no longer needed now that we're in space and converting a uh, a, a rocket into a you know a space ship if you will 
uh, so we can uh, spend a day and a half getting ready to join onto the space station. Sure. What was some of the science you did once you got to the space station? Well, I wasn't really a scientist. Um, I mean, the shuttle, we were were really uh, the Mack truck that was delivering the stuff and helping to install it and build the space station. We did do some experiments. I know on my second flight, Mark Kelly did a salmonella experiment. Uh, on my uh, on my second flight, we did a uh, the way I would describe it. It it, it was a uh, a floating like Rosie the um, Rosie on the Jetsons. You know mm-hmm. the the maid on the Jetsons is it Rosie. What was her name? I can't remember, but I know it would be technology for a a space robot. Hmm. Yeah. We had a very simple experiment that Roberto Vittori and I did where you, we basically turned it on and then released it and it went through a bunch of, of different gyrations. But I didn't do a lot of space uh, science. The pilot is really more of the you know janitor, the butler, the maid, the plumber, um, the high-speed cheerleader, the cook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then I was a robotics guy, so I did a lot of the robotics um, installing stuff, which is re- actually how I got onto both of my flights was because I was a combination pilot, and I was a, I was a top robotic uh, arm operator oh, gotcha. uh, in the courses. And so these two flights I went on had a lot of robotic activity, and since we had so many spacewalks, the guys behind me were all doing spacewalks, and 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 we were doing robotics at the same time. So I, I had to be a, a, a robotic guy. Awesome. What did the the two flights run? What did they carry up? Uh, so this first flight behind me, and by the way, Bob Binken, he and I were rookies together on that flight. He was one of the crew members on uh, SpaceX just last week. He's one of the guys. Yeah, that's there. right. He's, he's up on the space station now. Uh, that So he and I both flew two shuttle flights, but then he got the SpaceX flight. It's like, ah, oh, right. <laughs> but, but talk about waiting for a flight, man. I, he waited another decade just about um, for that flight. But boy, he's got to be smiling up there uh, working in space. But anyway, uh, so the question was. Oh, boy. No, I forgot it. What, was, what did you bring up? What, what, uh, so for the two flights that you did, what did you bring up? Yeah, so we have clues to what we uh, brought up on our patches. And these patches, are we spent a lot of time designing them. So we took up Mr. Dexter, uh, a Canadian hand, and took three spacewalks for us to put it together. Uh, and we took up the first module of the Kibo lab, the, the Japanese laboratory. We actually took up the closet that sits on top of the Japanese lab. Um, so uh, so we had, a, we had a Japanese astronaut on our crew for that reason, and he was the one that actually did the ceremonial installing of, uh, of the JPL on top of the station. And then building Mr. Dexter was a, was a big effort, uh, EVAs. And then I had the our veterinarian, who's an awesome spacewalker. Uh, he was on the end of my arm for three full spacewalks, putting this thing together. Uh, he was a Hubble. He was a Hubble space uh, telescope uh, spacewalker, very experienced. And so he was the one that was um, doing the uh, assembly of the. Mr. Dexter, the Special Purpose Dexterous Manipulator, SPDM. Second flight, we took up uh, the AMS, the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, and then we took up a pallet of a bunch of spare parts. Um, We also left the boom, the OBSS, um, the Orbital Boom Sensing Sensor System, and it's basically 
a 50-foot boom that you can use to inspect underneath the space shuttle when we when we were doing their thermal protection system inspections, but also can be used as an extension to the space station robotic arm. We had to use it on one flight, STS-120, uh, to extend Scott Perizinski out where he could work on the solar arrays. So now that's something that I always think is interesting is with all these flights, what's, act, what's actually going up, who's going up for what reasons. And we were, I mean, a lot of current students are kind of young to remember when the space station was getting built. We've more just seen like the, the science side of it and like the operations of it than the construction. So it's interesting to hear about that. Uh, so you did your two flights and then how long did you stick around after your second flight was done? So I went to a management job, uh, management detail, if you will, uh, after I came back from my second flight in 2011. Um, I was going to have to do some sort of job uh, in a more senior level. And uh, the one I chose was a STEM program and uh, communications outreach division in Cleveland, Ohio. So I went up to Cleveland for 15 months where I actually had 60 people who worked for me in this division. We had a budget and our two missions were to communicate, you know, down and in and up and out. And then also to uh, help enrich the the STEM community in our region. And actually we had a couple national programs as well. Awesome. And so you were there for a year or two and then you jumped over to CASIS. Is that correct? Well, I no, I, I was there for 15 months until early 2013. And then I came back to fly a third time in space. Okay. And so 2013, it was like, okay, now I've got to reintegrate myself back into the pipeline of astronauts. Uh, I was starting spacewalk training because I'd never gotten to do a spacewalk as a pilot, but these new, you know, these new missions on the Soyuz going up to the space station for a long period of time, everybody needed uh, some level of spacewalk training. Uh, and uh, and I was posturing myself for a third space flight when, you know, I got the call from Casis and they said, hey, you know, we want a guy. Um, it's interesting, you know, during the Columbia investigation period, there was a period of time where all of us in our class thought we'd never fly in space because we'd had the Challenger and then we'd had Columbia. And so what I did is in addition to helping with the investigation, which was my day job, I decided I needed to get an MBA as a backup plan. So I went to the University of Texas, Austin, and uh, did a two-year in-residence, but only on the weekends type program, uh, and got the MBA there, uh, and uh, and then went back into the flow. And so they were looking for an astronaut with some business training, and also they wanted kind of a strong leader because it was a pretty challenging mission, and uh, and they ended up pointing at me. And, and I, and at first I said, I, I laughed. I said, I couldn't, I would never do this job. There's no way, you know, this is not part of my career progression, blah, blah, blah. But after I learned about the importance of the mission in, in the evolution of commercial space and the utilization of the space station, we had spent 13 years building the space station. And so how could I walk away from an opportunity to help better use it? I mean, when we're when we were building it, you know, we were living in the house that we were building, and we did some <laughs> some science here and there, um, some more important than others. Uh, the AMS is probably the most significant experiment uh, that I was involved with, and that went up on that last flight of Endeavor. So, 
the utilization period kind of started after the assembly was complete, pretty much. And so it was important to use those use those uh, facilities, but it was also important to bring in new innovation and uh, non-traditional commercial players. And so we started working on that and, and cases, our mission was to do that. And so, uh, but, but a very difficult uh, place to be in where we're not in NASA, now we're outside of NASA. And it's, it was not entirely clear that NASA even wanted us to exist. And that's totally true. Um, and so I was sort of having to be, once again, the kind of the high speed cheerleader of getting these different groups to work together. Um, and, and sometimes it was there were ambushes. It was crazy um, because we were reporting to NASA, um, but we were also reporting to the politicians. So the legislate, you know, the, the congressmen and the senators and the, and the White House, the OSTP, they, they were tracking us. And then I had my own board of directors. <laughs> they had expectations too. And then the commercial companies themselves who were kind of competing for these the opportunities. It, it was really quite a uh, interesting dance uh, for that five years that I was there with Cases. Yeah, quite the gallery of stakeholders. <laughs> it was the gallery of stakeholders. And, you know, people joke about having two bosses. You know, we had like five bosses. Yeah. And it was, it was, but with me, I always try to be optimistic. I always try to find my way through uh, difficult uh, situations by just listening and learning and trying to optimize. Sometimes we didn't um, uh, we didn't optimize enough, and people got their um, their their feelings hurt or they were frustrated. But uh, but we made some progress. Now the expectation I think when I started the job uh, was that Casis would de- develop enough commercial. Uh, activity that it would pay for the space station itself, but th- that was a fairly lofty goal because the space station costs about three billion a year to operate, and um, and we were starting from scratch on a really low budget. But we created some activity. We created about a tenth of that, um, which is something. It's ten percent, um, and I think they're doing more of it now. And so we're working toward, you know, making a business case of space stations, which is why you see now uh, companies like Axiom up there that are really making a business case for um, a commercial space station. Yeah. Uh, this is my fault. I should have asked this question first, um, but it's, I just want to ask one about if you could explain what cases is to people that aren't clear. Okay. So, so the former name, when I, when I went on board at cases, uh, it was the center for the advancement of science and space. And it was a nonprofit created in uh, the NASA authorization act of 2010 and it, and it directed NASA to create a nonprofit that was not aligned. It wasn't a contractor. It was a nonprofit, independent nonprofit that would prioritize half of this, of, of this science and technology on the space station, focusing on Earth benefit. And then NASA could focus the other half of their research on living in space, long duration space flight, and then you know moving from the space station deeper into the solar system. So it, it was a good balance in theory. We did end up with some kind of non-space guys on, on, on our team that they did, they understood venture capital, but they really didn't understand space commercialization and the, in, in the, and so there was a, a, a storming and forming period where everybody was getting to know each other. And I think over time, uh, they've righted some of those relationships, but it was just a very difficult thing to do where I compared it to having a little stepbrother 
who's handed the keys to, to half, half the kingdom. And, you know, every, and, and this little stepbrother, you know, people are holding their foot out and, and tripping him as he's walking to the cookie jar and everything. Cause he, he's got half the keys to the kingdom. And I, I'm, I'm not being vindictive. I'm just saying <laughs> that really was the relationship that we had. And so we had to be positive. Uh, we had to be optimistic. Um, we had to just keep working through difficulties um, to answer your question. Cause that was the real, the real question. It was formed in 2011 is when it came together at then it was called the center for the advancement of science space. Uh, I was the, the second executive director. It didn't work out so well that first year and a half. And I joined in 2013 as partly because I was a NASA insider who I could maybe help build some of the relationships or mend some of the relationships. And, um, it eventually became named the ISS National Laboratory, but it really always was the ISS National Laboratory. CASIS was really just the name of the nonprofit. Um, so does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that nails it. I just wanted to give people context for what, what CASIS slash the National Lab is and, and what they do. Yeah, you know, and it's so funny, you know, it, it's been really hard. I mean, the, the transition from government to commercial has always been hard in our human history. I mean, if you think about the transition of the maritime explorers where Queen Isabella was, you know, the government, right? Subsidized exploration. Uh, I guess the church got involved with the pilgrims, right? But eventually, you know, commerce, uh, co commercial companies were making a profit. And so, uh, and that transition was, has always been difficult in our history. Airplanes, same way. I mean, the airmail system in the 30s that was government owned was just terrible. And so when we transitioned to uh, a, a civilian uh, airmail system, uh, it was it was a lot better. So um, similarly, uh, space, you know, has its bumps and ebbs as we figure out how to be commercial in space. But I mean, look at the SpaceX uh, launch that just happened. I mean, that's that's laissez-faire. Uh, operations in work where we have commercial companies competing and innovating to come up with the best design. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've always thought of it as the, the greater the challenge, the greater we rise to meet it, you know, and especially with COVID kind of stacking on some of these other issues, um, and especially working on pushing the space industry um, and, and pushing the, the the goals of the space industry. I mean, I definitely think that a little bit of adversity is, is conducive to the success long term, and you can really see any setback as helping you push out the best product, you know, and no matter what the circumstances. Yeah. And, you know, a little, a little sidebar on COVID, you know, I mean, look what COVID's doing to digital fluency and look what COVID's doing for telemedicine and look what COVID's doing for our, just our habit patterns of hygiene. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately we'll be a safer civilization because of COVID. Uh, and also we're reducing our carbon footprint with these, with using our digital fluency and, and that's a good thing for the sustainability of our planet. So we're going to have a lot of great outcomes once we get past this, this battle that we're in with COVID. So, but being optimistic is important and seeing, seeing what's working and, and understanding what's not working and working together to fix the problems, doing your part, being a crew member of Spaceship Earth and not just a passenger along for the ride. Yeah. Well, it's great to hear the perspective from an astronaut. I think that was a really powerful explanation. Well, we're globally connected, you know, and when you get up in space and you look at the earth, I mean, there's no borders on, on, on the surface of the earth uh, and you, you, 
that moment when I looked out the cupola on my second flight, oh, by the way, the cupola is an awesome uh, module and it wasn't up on my first flight. And my sister, the architect, told me that that's a window is the most important part of a building. And I didn't believe my big sister. But then when I saw the cupola, yeah. <laughs> my sister went to U of M. She got a uh, she got an undergrad and master's in architecture. Um, but but she she told me that I'd be inspired by the cupola. And I was I spent a lot of time looking at our beautiful planet and it changes things because we're we're fragile. We're just another little spaceship that's traveling around the sun once a year, you know. Yeah, that's got to be an incredible thing. And I, I definitely believe that when people go up there, I can see how it changes your worldview. Like you said, no borders and, and seeing everything that we have made in one frame. is got to be very interesting. Yeah. And if you think about the space station, it's a closed loop ecosystem, just like the Earth is. And, and mm-hmm. an astronaut would never dream of damaging their own space spaceship that they're living in right right <laughs> and, and you wouldn't there was no hostility in space we had we had russians up there right who who yeah. are mm-hmm. it's pretty stressful even during the period of the space station uh, but politics never made it up into space one yeah. of my uh, one of the crewmates on my let's see this first flight uh uh he was an expedition crew member on the uh, on the expedition side he was a mig-29 pilot in the russian air force and my job in the U.S. Air Force was to shoot him down uh, during the Cold War. Right. And and huh. now we're working together. One of the first things we did after the safety briefing when we joined onto the space station is is uh, uh, Dimitri and I floated into the space shuttle because he'd never never been in one. And I sat him down in the commander's seat. I sat in the pilot seat, and we and we we spent a good thirty minutes in there. You know, he's saying, "Man, this is a pretty impressive vehicle. It looks a lot like the Baran, which is the Russian." The Buran is the Russians' uh, space shuttle that that they uh, flew for a period of time, um, and and it was a er- ergonometrically similar to the sh- layout of the space shuttle, except we didn't have Cyrillic all over. We had uh, you know glass cockpit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that that was something I was going to talk to you was about was was how you communicate with people from different countries. Did the Russians speak any English, or did you guys learn a little mm-hmm. Russian, or how did that work? Okay, so when I was flying, when we were building the space station, the the people that lived up there, the expedition crew members, they had to have a certain level of, of Ru- Russian fluency. Uh, and it actually, it increased over time. You know, the early stage guys, the Russian had to be maybe at level, you know, five of 15. And then by the end of assembly, the, the expedition crew members had to have a lot more uh, Russian uh, fluency. But the official language of the space station by treaty is English. And so the Russians learn enough English to communicate um, and some better than others. And and the Japanese and all the other countries um, could speak in English. They Some of the different space agencies have their own control rooms. Russia does, Jap- Japan does. And so when they're doing uh, con- operations from their mission control in their country, they would usually speak in their native language. But when we were working together, we had to have one common language. And so it was English and it, and it wasn't a problem. That makes sense. Yeah. I've always, you know, kind of, I, I knew that the official language was English, but I wasn't sure how closely that was followed or if it was kind of a mix. So that's interesting to hear. Well, it is a mix. And, and you know, that again, different countries have different cultures and the way they do things. And so 
there were probably people bending the rules uh, in different areas on different uh, procedures, depending on what it was. And sometimes it's easier for the controllers, for example, in Japan, to, to speak in Japanese to Takao as we were um, working with the Kibo lab. So we, we did, um, it, it's a international space station. And so we had lots of languages up there. The perfect crew member knows Japanese, Russian, um, Spanish, German and English or whatever, you know, so. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what you did after you left cases. So that would have been 2018 ish. Yeah. 2018, uh, March, uh, I left the rat race. I like to say, and, uh, wanted to do things, uh, that, that, that I'd always been wanting to do. I wanted, one of the things was I wanted to go into the private sector and get involved with the equity piece of it, um, with some startups. I wanted to fly again uh, at Casis. I just let all my flying currency go away. In fact, I didn't do any music and I didn't do any flying the entire time I was working at Casis. It was I was so busy and engulfed in that work. So I wanted to do music again. Haven't managed to do that yet, um, but I'm getting closer. I'm in the music room here. Um, <laughs> You're working your way there, yeah. And, yeah, and I got a piano in the lake house. So there you go. <laughs> so okay, so so I've been working on it, but. Uh, so I, I wanted to do these things that I really wanted to do. And I also wanted to get involved in some programs that did a little bit more give back, similar to what we were doing in Cleveland. And so uh, so I was just doing a mixture of, of freelance uh, contracts, uh, 1099 work, if you will. Um, and so quarter time here, quarter time there, advising this person with retainer, you know, doing that. And, uh, and I was just freelancing for two years. To break it down, the STEM component was Newton's Road uh, up in Traverse City because I love Traverse City. And uh, and they were looking for a new executive director for their reboot of, of Newton's Road. So I got a year-long contract with them uh, to get that going. And now I've graduated to the board. So now I'm, instead of working for them, I'm now a donor and a board member. It's great. you know. <laughs> no, it's really awesome. It's, it's great. No, because I want to retire up there someday. And I want the kids up there to be exposed to STEM. You know, that's really important, especially in an area that doesn't have as much technology as some other areas of Michigan or in the country. I wanted to talk a little bit about Space Nation because that's not something I'm super familiar with. And I saw you're you're involved now as the chief space officer. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Space Nation um, is a startup, uh, one of those startups that I want to get involved with. And I'm, I'm really really an advisor. I'm just the only astronaut advisor on the board. And so they came up with that flashy mm-hmm. name, but, um, that's cool. But <laughs> in any case, uh, space nation's vision, uh, it has a couple components. One is to just develop space minded people and that space knows no borders and that it shouldn't just be a few countries that go to space. It, it's, it's everybody's space. And so th- they have a term the democratization of space. And it starts with, you know, education. And so it could start with something simple as an app and just broadening the understanding of what space brings and the importance of not settling with our little outpost here on Earth. But but we've got a whole big universe that we've got to explore. And, also, and so space-minded people is what they're trying to create. So apps... Uh, awareness of what we're doing, actually having courses where they can learn about being, you know, the astronaut mindset. It, it, it was their jingle. Uh, 
and then um, doing expeditions that were similar uh, to expeditions that you might do in space. They picked Iceland because Iceland was where the Apollo astronauts uh, did some of their original training. Uh, and so Space Nation is really about uh, broadening the perspective of our planet, that, that space is important and you know everybody should be mindful of what's going on in space. And you know the sky is no longer the limit. And so uh, Space Nation has, uh, during this COVID environment, our expedition to Iceland was canceled, but we pivoted and we created an online course uh, during the period of time where we talked about um, interesting things like new space business. Uh, we talked about the Mar Mars rover and I heard an amazing analogy from Dr. Jim Rice, who trained astronauts in geology, has spent a lot of time in Iceland, but he also has worked with operators of Martian rovers for decades. And what was interesting is he told me those rovers on Mars, they, um, they outlived their expected lifetimes by tenfold. And so those operators would view each day as potentially the last day of the rover's life. And so they wanted to make the best of it. You know, you, and that really resonated with me because it was like, wow, I mean, this could be my last day today. And so every day we should maximize. And just a simple analogy like that um, really resonated with me. And, and then we talked to them about the uh, uh, expeditionary skills, crisis management, problem solving in space. And then the final lesson was the overview effect that I kind of described to you earlier about looking as, at the planet as sort of a spaceship and we're all in in this together. So it was a, it was a fun exercise, and we got a several dozen people involved in that course. And I think Space Nation is going to work on that curriculum. So I'm the astronaut guy on the on the team. Awesome. If it's all right with you, uh, we'll do some of the student questions now. Okay. Yep. I think we got through most of your career stuff and got some good stories. The first one will actually be mine. So Traverse City sounds like a pretty nice place to retire. If you were offered a ride on Starship instead to go to Mars, would you consider that or no? Oh, so you're saying I can't retire in Traverse City, but I can go on a Starship ride to Mars. Um, yeah, that would Mars. be the trade-off. Okay. Yeah, instead of retiring in Traverse City, you go to Mars. Oh, but would I retire in Mars? on Mars? I can't. What does Elon... He says we can get back. For, yeah. All right. Let's say you're going for like a 10-year stint. Um, I mean, me personally, I'd do it in a heartbeat as long as I can come back to Traverse City when I'm 68. Um, I, I don't think, uh, Mrs. Johnson or some other people in my life would, would think that would be the right thing to do, but I'd sign up for it. Okay, cool. Uh, all right. Other student questions we've got on here. One is about the shuttle descent. So it's, it, it descends infamously quickly. Does it feel like a plane when it's actually coming in to land on the strip or does it feel like it's kind of just falling out of the sky? Uh, it feels like a plane plane on approach and landing. So yeah, as, as we were zipping into the atmosphere, we're getting a lot of atmospheric drag um, and and a lot of heating. And so it's heating up. So it's pretty kind of scary looking out the front of it, knowing that another mm -hmm. shuttle disintegrated, you know, on reentry is like, whoa. Yeah. Uh, but once you get past that heating period of time and you start um, get, getting lower in altitude, we're really clipping along the ground, you know, Mach 20. I mean, it's just really cool. Yeah. Uh, it's it's. All automated. I mean, we can take over manual at any time, but it, it's all automatic until we get to subsonic, and then we take over manually for the rest of the of the you know approach and landing. 
And so Mach 0.95, we take over manually and then we, we fly, um, you know, fly the hack, the heading alignment cone in, a de- in about a 20 degree descent uh, toward landing. And we've got our rudder speed brake that would modulate to, to hold our speed stable at 300 knots indicated. And that was just that was just the profile. And so our energy footprints coming down at 20 degrees nose low, um, uh, pretty low L over D coming in. Um, but uh, but still, if we close the speed brakes, you could stretch it out pretty far. And 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 if you opened up the speed brakes, um, you can you can get down pretty quick. Uh, you could also get, if you really needed a lot of drag at the last minute, you could bring the gear down a little bit early, right? Or, um, but once the gear go down in the shuttle, they go down. <laughs> so, uh, but it, so to answer your question, it became increasingly more and more like an airplane. We're 20 degrees nose low though, until 2000 feet. So we're aiming about a mile short of the runway. And then you transition to the inner glide path, and that's a degree and a half, a very precise transition. And now our airspeed starts coming down. So, so we're at 300 knots, 20 degrees nose low, 2,000 feet, hit the inner glide path. Now we're slowing down, slowing down, slowing down. Gear come down 300 feet, boom, touchdown at 195. So it was a lot like an airplane in the last little bit. But really what it was like is like the the, the shuttle training aircraft, the simulator, the airborne Gulfstream simulator that we trained and trained and trained and trained and trained in. Um, I felt like I was in the Gulfstream, except when we landed. And it's like, oh, because because when you have so much training, I mean, I, ju- I just felt like I was in an STA flying, you know, fl- flying another one of those shuttle approaches, you know. Huh. Interesting. Uh, do you have uh, favorite planes or favorite couple planes you've ever flown? Yes. Um, the A-10. It was the favorite uh, one hop that I got to fly. Yeah. Um, since it's single seat, the first flight was a solo flight, um, and we had um, it had the thirty millimeter um, uh, cannon. It's just yeah. unbelievable. It's like a gun with a with a uh, plane built around it. I mean, it was just incredible. You could smell, and it was interesting. I I remember, and this this flight was decades ago, but uh, there were eleven hundred rounds, and we had five test pilots per jet assigned. So each of us got 220 rounds and it shot 50 rounds per second. So that's about, you know, four seconds of trigger pull, which is actually a lot uh, for, for a gun on a, on an airplane, you know, the F-15, you know, we just went very short uh, bursts for strafing or whatever. But, uh, but the A-10, uh, I had two guys who didn't use their full allotment of, of uh, the, the bullets for their flights. And so my rounds limiter was on 660, but only a hundred had been expended. So I got 550 rounds, 11 seconds of trigger pull, which is an eternity. And it destroyed that, um, that VW bus that was down. On the oh, target God. <laughs> and, and these were just, and these were dummy bullets. I mean, they didn't have the high explosive incendiary. They were just, but they're big giant bullets and they yeah. come out. I mean, they're heavy and they just tore the thing apart. So I'm not a warmonger, but I'll tell you what, that was a really fun um, <laughs> rush to fly the A-10. Yeah, they look really cool, too. That's been one of my favorite planes. Very sophisticated. Really? But we slowed down. I mean, 30-degree dive, 20-degree dive. Um, we, I guess it was me, because I'm it's just me in the airplane, but yeah. we're coming in and uh, maybe 
240 knots, as I recall, we might lose 100 knots, 20 degree dive, pull on the trigger for several seconds. So a yeah. lot of recoil, a lot of F equals the MA going out the front of the airplane, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> impulse there. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. It was awesome. Um, did you have any issues being in microgravity, sleeping, eating? Did you have any, like, yeah, really just any issues with being in microgravity? And also, how many days were you up there total? I was up there 31 and a half days, both flights for 15 and three quarters. Uh, this flight was uh, 250 orbits, and and then my last flight was 299 orbits. So they're, they're both really very similar in, in duration. Um Microgravity, I mean, it's it's magical. I, I loved being up there. Um, it did come with a few problems. Um, people's eyesight, my eyesight got better, but some people's eyesight gets worse. And they were doing an eye study on my second flight. Um, you grow taller because you're not in gravity. And I almost I was almost six foot yeah. for, for for a while there, but then I went back down. So, but I, I, they did a study on my second flight. I grew four point three centimeters. So wow. almost, almost two inches is pretty, pretty impressive. So five, five, nine, almost five, 11, just little shift. Um, we're still learning about the heart because when the fluids shift and the, the pull of gravity, um, uh, is different or non-existent, uh, the, the hearts, I think get more spherical and, and there might be some issues with that. And I think also there were some, some issues, uh, some studies, late studies in the shuttle program with the, with the effects of radiation and microgravity on the brain. Um, so, so there are some there are are some health risks. Me particularly, though, is what you were asking about. Um, I was I had trouble. I I have trouble sleeping here on the ground. Okay, <laughs> uh, my brain's always worrying. Okay, yeah. So when I was in space, I just it was hard for me to sleep. You know, I. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I had to, you know, to take a little ambient to get myself down, you know, because I'm floating in space. Yeah, here. right. Just, but it was so comfortable. I mean, it's a perfect mm. retirement community, you know. No, <laughs> um, I, I, my elongation of my spine that's been damaged by pulling nine G's and fighters. Um, I had a little bit of discomfort in my neck on my second flight, um, and interestingly enough, the way uh, we combated that was by compressing my spine. So I built this contraption out of duct tape that I slept in <laughs> that would hold my head down. And that took away the pain, if you can believe that. That's you know, that's a medical thing that NASA may, may or may not want me to talk about, but it's my personal medicine. So that, that happened to me it's and, funny. Uh, and it worked. You know? I'm glad to hear that duct tape engineering still happens in space. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, duct tape was the best thing we had up there. It was great. Use it for everything. Now that we have 3D printers, right. duct tape becomes less mm-hmm. important. But um, but I still think it's very, very important. We use it all the time. Yeah. Especially guys like me as the butler and the maid and the plumber and the janitor. You know, duct tape. It's the is, multi-tool. Yeah. Oh, dude, it was great for uh, um, uh, cleaning the filters. You take a, a, you know, we had vacuums, this da- vacuum that must have been made. Um, I don't want to be politically incorrect. This vacuum was made in in a very non-industrial place, okay? That they had up there. They did not have the high-tech vacuum that could have been made at SpaceX. Mm-hmm. And um and I was supposed to vacuum our filters daily uh with this this terrible vacuum. But a little roll of uh, a little ring of duct tape inverted in your hand, I can <laughs> clean clean those 
this filters like lickety split. So, um, yeah, well, it doesn't have to be pretty if it works. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, a little bit about the, the, the demo two mission and dragon. I was just curious, uh, what you thought on them basically just having touchscreens now instead of more traditional controls. Would you be comfortable with that? Do you think the computer science has and the flight software has progressed to a point where we don't really need to be controlling the rockets anymore? Or do you think they should have more manual backups or something? Okay, so I don't think that's a black and white issue yet. Um, yeah. So let me talk about the t- touchscreens. Um, first time I ever rode in a Tesla was this year, believe it or not. Uh, it was right before COVID hit. One of my airline buddies had a Tesla up in Dallas. And that, that thing was amazing. I mean, it it picked us up at dinner. You know, we fi- finished dinner yeah. and, he, and it backed up and drove over and picked us up. I I was amazed by that thing. And it was, it was driving itself. I just did not, I didn't even realize that cars were that advanced um, with that type of technology. And so that made me a lot more comfortable just riding in a Tesla and seeing how it worked. Um, mm-hmm. I think... When we push the limit of the you know the, the frontiers of technology, we have to be careful that we totally rely on automation and machines because they can only be as good as their well, I guess AI will disagree with me, right? But but they're programmed to know a certain set of parameters and and they at least at this point they can't innovate like creative humans. So we're moving, we're moving down the line where automation is more reliable and, um, and can be more efficient. And, uh, and I think that probably the SpaceX uh, dragon is pushing the limit of that automation. So I'm comfortable with it. First of all, they also have a lot of, uh, of abort capability. So from, from launch all the way to space, they had a safe way to get away from a catastrophic failure, which the shuttle didn't really have. Um, we had we addressed that during the trajectory, but there were areas where y- you probably weren't going to be able to make it. Um, and so uh, SpaceX demo, and I understand Starliner, they're both different. Um, they're safer uh, just for that reason. So I was... I was inspired that day. I was sitting right here, actually. I was uh, on the news, the Houston News Channel, and I was helping moderate the launch for KPRC here in Houston. And um, we were talking together uh, when the launch scrubbed, and I could see on the TV when I played it back that I was so disappointed when they scrubbed, but I was kind of sharing what it felt like uh, to to get ready. And Bob Binkin and I got ready on this flight together. But also uh, just just the amazing optimism and just advancement of humanity by putting this new spaceship in, 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 into outer space and then launching from U.S. soil. I mean, it was just a momentous uh, historical milestone um, for the country and frankly, for the world. So I was inspired. I can tell you, I was smiling the whole way. And I was nervous. I was nervous with them when, when they were in the cockpit. I, was, my, I could feel my heart beating. You know? <laughs> I was really excited because a lot of my friends that are like have nothing to do with space were texting me and very excited about the launch and watching it. So it was great to see that like so many people not involved with space in any way were still very interested in what's going on. I think SpaceX and NASA have done a really good job of advertising it basically and marketing it as this 
this big occasion. So I thought that was cool. The last question we always ask is about advice for students. And it's basically predicated on the fact that students look up to leaders in the space industry and yourself being an astronaut and someone that's been involved with the industry for a long time, students look up to you. What advice do you have for students that are in college right now and are preparing to go into the space industry in the next couple of years? Okay. The first thing is don't uh, take on a career path that it was somebody else's choice because they think it's good for you. Do what you love and then you'll do it really well. And then whatever the field is, uh, you can uh, live with yourself and and work doesn't become work. It actually becomes fun. Um, I'd say with the same, in the same token, uh, sometimes to get to, to where you want to be, there's some e- intermediate steps along the way. Um, don't pick an I- intermediate step that you're not happy with. Because first of all, it's hard to progress to the next step if you don't love this intermediate step. So at least for me, I loved flying first. I loved flying fighters. I love being a test pilot. And if that's where the story ended, I'm complete. And I, I'd probably be working for you know Lockheed testing the F-35 in Dallas or something. So do what you love, then you'll do it really well. Make every day count. And that's when I come back to the, um, the Mars rover thing where those controllers treat every day of those Martian rovers like it's the last day. And, and life is precious. And, it, you know, one thing is for sure, we know we're all going to have an end, end of our lives. So let's make every day count. And when you're trying to build a career, it's really important to do that. It does, but also it's important to be balanced. And I don't think I was balanced enough uh, when I was when I was younger. Um, earlier today, I actually had a similar interview with some kids in Europe this morning from Amsterdam. And they and and their question was uh, there. It's a five year celebration and the theme is Endeavor. So they talked to Endeavor astronauts you know, to for, to weigh in. What was your greatest endeavor of your life? And and my greatest endeavor was my three kids, you know, but I wouldn't have said that when I was your age. <laughs> and I wouldn't have said that when I was 35 either. But so, so the work-life balance is really important and, and it shifts over time as we get older and get different perspectives, uh, but keep a good work-life balance. Be optimistic, be optimistic. Sometimes when you have to do that terrible um, exam or project in college, and you can either do it with a frown on your face or you can do it with a smile on your face, or at least you're not frowning. I mean, just try to find the good in everything. Um, An example would be in the Air Force, uh, there are some places that are great to be assigned, like in Florida or something, or Hawaii. And then there's other places that maybe in the Northern Tier or Greenland that people didn't like to go to, but every place, and Edwards was like that. I mean, Edwards is really in the middle of nowhere, but if you have an optimistic mindset, you can um, find the good in in anything. Um, And so that's probably my pieces of advice. Make every day count, be optimistic. Yeah, I, 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 (laughs) I should be able to list them, but, but I'm just talking off the top of my head, do what you love and do it really well. Yep. And, and don't do a job because somebody else told you that's what you should do. Make sure it's what you want to do. And then you'll do it better, you know. Is that fair? Yeah, perfect. You want to hear anything else, producer? Anything else you want to hear? Uh, let me look through my notes. I think that was about it. Alex, did you have any other questions we didn't hit? Oh, I think we covered everything and then some. 
<laughs> Perfect. That was great advice. Well, thank you, Greg, for coming on the show. It was great to hear from you. Uh, we appreciate your time. I had a wonderful time talking to you guys. Uh, you you all get stuff uh, out of this uh, from me, but I also am enriched by you, uh, just our interaction. And so um, I'm a lifetime learner and, and I love talking to the youth because you guys look at things differently. And um, I think more of us older people should listen to you young people uh, uh, more often than sometimes we do. But um, thanks for having me on your show and um, we'll cross paths again sometime. All right. That concludes our episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it and we will see you next time.